Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. the ultimate power in the universe. Come with you to Alderaan. There's nothing for me here now. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. It's a spectacle, light years ahead of its time. <laughs> it's an epic of heroes. worlds. Go that way. You'll be malfunctioning within a day, you nearsighted scrap pile. Star Wars. A billion years in the making. The Force will be with you. Always.
it's your birthday. Our little baby's all grows up. You know what? Shut up. Come on. No. Our little baby's all grows up. Sweet birthday, baby. Happy birthday. You're grown up. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. It is your birthday period, David, a fact. Hey! Happy birthday. Happy birthday to Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Because you're grown up and you're grown up and you're grown up. Number one, I'm All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast, the birthday celebration. That's right, we've been on the air for a little, well, two years today, as a matter of fact. Yep, yep. So, uh, here we go. We're going to be talking about one of the greatest movies uh, that I love, and pretty much of all time, sci-fi, uh, Star Wars, A New Hope. Um, but before we get there, uh, Terrence, well, let me go ahead and introduce these two fellow cohorts. I'm your host, Jimbo, and of course, joined by me since the beginning of the inception of the podcast, we have... The one who couldn't, unfortunately, get John Williams to create an epic score for us, uh, Terrence Davis. <laughs> but we did find a clown that went, wah, 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 for Terrence's introduction. And yes, the new uh, triple co-host, the triple threat with our new stooge. And it's Kyle Zander. Hello, everybody. Kyle, what's the podcast meant to you? You've only been here a few times, but... You know, it means everything to me. It's my only reason for living. <laughs> and uh, frankly, if this thing ends, everything does. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is true. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be talking about um, Star Wars. But Terrence, go ahead and... What does this podcast meant to you since we've started? Some things we've changed. Some favorite moments. Some non-favorite moments. Glitches, so, <laughs> recording stuff and forgetting to hit, <laughs> plug in the microphone. Like uh, We've never done that. <laughs> well, let's just rewind it three minutes ago. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the podcast is, is brought a lot of meaning, you know. Uh, I kind of just, <laughs> now I'm all jumbled. So, it's, it's really cool being on the podcast because, uh, A, I get to see a lot of movies I would have otherwise not seen. B, I get to hit movies in my backlog that I realistically would have never gotten to. Um, you know, uh, it's helped, you know, talk about a lot of these movies outside of the podcast. You know, we'll just be talking shot with some people, and uh, I feel more informative than I was before. Um which is only slightly, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, yeah, it's 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 been really awesome. It's been really fun, and I feel like you know we've we've definitely evolved from episode one, uh, which was very cut and dry, and then you know we took us a couple episodes to find ourselves to get organized, and uh, and here we are, and I think we're you know we, we're we're in a pretty good place, and it's always just trying to improve and uh, go from there. I think you guys are both entirely right, and like this is not just obviously speaking to you guys as personal experiences. I haven't been here for nearly as long, obviously. But, I mean, it's it's great to have a structure to kind of look at films from more of an analytical perspective and actually get this growing experience where you learn to appreciate films even better. And, like I said, like you said, getting around that backlog, which just constantly grows and rarely ever, like, gets down. Exactly. But having, like, a podcast schedule be like, okay, I need to watch this movie this week gets me around to it in a way that I just wouldn't have otherwise. And I really appreciate that. Right, and I think that's one of the reasons, like, uh, me and Tara talked, Terrence talked earlier that um, he he had never seen 12 Angry Men and that one movie that stands out to me for Terrence because he went back and watched it and he realized man this is a really good movie yeah and it's still 
And then I, I always bring up when we were doing the Turtles movie, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where Terrence got to the part where we were talking about the... He's like, they brought the nunges in? <laughs> where it was nunges. Nun- yeah, nunges. He, just, he just cracked up. That sticks out. Uh, but not only that, but also all of our fan interaction we had, like with the um, Lost Boys episode. Oh, I yeah. thought that was really fun when the fans gave back. Um, it spawned uh, the Twilight Zone series because there was so much interest from another listener of ours that they wanted to start a podcast with us. So I just added it to this one. So we cover the Twilight Zone uh, episode by episode. So there's a lot of things going on. Uh, but it's only possible because of the listeners like you Absolutely. guys. So we love you guys. Um, and at the end of this episode, we already have some coming in that I will be playing some audio clips from people from all over the world that wanted to be part of this podcast. We wanted to show our love. So we're going to let them say what they want to say to us or about us. You're right. <laughs> and by the way, Die Hard be- is not a Christmas movie. Just let's go ahead and get that out <laughs> so, there right so now. Here's what, I find that's, I, here's what I find that's very unique. And I, I find it really fun with us and our audiences. Um, it's not too many times you get to see... <laughs> you know, a, a podcast butt heads with us audience in good fun. Um, I mean, obviously, we have uh, uh, Jimbo on the uh, uh, Die Hard is not a movie train. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the wrong train. Where I'm, I'm crazy train. On, it is a Christmas movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we've we've also had our differences when it came to the Lost Boys, uh, particularly when we talked about The Breakfast Club. We got a lot of backlash there. But, you know, it's, it's all in good fun and... Uh, we all laugh about it, and we all make jokes about it, and and uh, it's it's really fun, and it's kind of what, what what keeps me coming back is is those kind of interactions. Right, it's hilarious. right, and it's it's fun, and and you know it's like um, like I said, I'm watching movies that I've never even saw before, and I'm realizing that there is a lot of movies outside of what I knew about that I enjoy. Yeah, and I really like it because some of us. Let's face it, Terrence. I know some of these movies you would never even watch. You would have never even heard of. Yeah, if it no, wasn't for, sure. for this. So, and Kyle, <laughs> Kyle, time of day too, Kyle owns every movie ever existed already, so it's okay. <laughs> so I'm trying to drink an ocean, <laughs> right? So, uh, like I said, this is going to be episode 57. It's going to be Star Wars: A New Hope, um, and there's two years. Uh, birthday celebration, hopefully many more to come. So, Terrence, take it away. All right, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope came out. May 25th, 1977, the year Jimbo was born. God, you're old. Yeah. <laughs> Runtime. You know what we call that? We call that a Jedi Master, and Kyle is a Padawan. <laughs> Barely an Ewok. <laughs> you're, 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 I was getting ready to say, uh, while we recognize you as part of the podcast, you are not officially... A Jedi podcaster. <laughs> You're saying I'm not part of the council? Well, they know that goes. They don't call me Jedi. They don't call me Jedi Jimbo for nothing. <laughs> so, uh, box office budget. We're looking at 11 million. Uh, fun fact: originally, the budget for this movie was 8 million. Um, Diocho. Yeah, <laughs> so Spanish for eight. <laughs> uh, George Lucas. Um, <laughs> And uh, uh, Gary Coots, in, in particular, the two producers for the film, uh, they were sweating bullets for uh, about a week, um, and they actually fell behind in production uh, because they were trying, they were too busy trying to figure out how to stretch the numbers uh, of what they had um, before 20th Century Fox was finally like, okay, you know, we'll give you a little extra. Um, to which, you know, they went back on schedule and they were able to wrap up on time. Um, but yeah, it was definitely. Uh, really rough for George Lucas, uh, and you know what, what? I'm sure we all three of us have notes on it. But um, on the set, uh, he he was a wreck, um, particularly because this was a really big film compared to some of the previous things he's done um, at the and, time, and just a big film in general for the time. Yeah, yeah. and um, he's he's a very like to himself. 
person. And so you had to interact with uh, a lot of people at once. Um, and so that was overwhelming for them. Uh, but yeah, no, they got, basically, you know, they got through, they got their 11 million. Um, you know, all better for it, definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, without uh, it, it would have been a much worse film uh, in, in so many respects. It would have all fallen oh, apart. Yeah, for sure. We would not be talking about Star Wars today <laughs> in nearly the same way. <laughs> and so if you account for inflation, you're looking at about 47.7 million. Um, if we're looking at opening weekend, this is where it gets surprising uh, versus, you know, it's gross USA. So opening weekend, it didn't make much at all. It made uh, 1.5 million. That's it. That is, yeah. So it didn't even <laughs> it didn't even equal like usually you see we've seen a lot with movies uh, that we've covered previously they'll double sometimes triple if mm-hmm. they're really really good um, but this one it just opening weekend it did not take off yeah but it did later because we look at the gross and it made four hundred and sixty million dollars if you account for inflation. That's $2 billion today. That is incredible. Right? No. <laughs> um, and then we're, that's just gross USA. If we look at cumulative gross worldwide, that's $775 million. That's $3.4 billion today. You know what we call that? Cha-ching. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it definitely, it definitely came back. And um, I actually have the numbers for the box office. Uh, as usual, I'm looking up the top five box office for the year because uh, it's, it's too far back to find the individual month still. Um, so I have the box office uh, top five from 1977. At number one, to no surprise, Star Wars Episode Four: New Hope. At uh, 195 million dollars. Now, to give you such like how big this was, at number two, which only made 47 million dollars, was The Deep. And mm-hmm. then we, and then following up uh, with The Spy Who Loved Me, uh, 45 million. Oh God, uh, 41 million, and Exorcist Two: The Heretic, 30 million. But do you know what's even really more interesting than that is? Think of the ticket prices back then. They were oh, nowhere yeah. near what they cost for a movie today. Exactly. And that even makes it more uh, more interesting because I know there's a, a friend of mine named Mark that said when this came out, he was in high school, and said that for a solid straight year, it played at the theaters from, from that May to the next May. And they said it was packed all the time and it would be wrapped around the blocks and stuff. So I thought, you know, you know, it's something just, yeah, raking it in, cultural phenomenon. Exactly. Everyone needed to see it. You know, yeah. people even watched the Christmas special because they just needed more Star Wars right? that soon. And it's like we you were know. talking about earlier. I mean, uh, sci fi and fantasy were just looked at as like only children's, uh, largely juvenile, immature, you know, fantasies, exactly. all those kind of things. So when you realize, like, oh, hey, adults can enjoy this too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, this is definitely where you know sci-fi really picks up, and special effects too. And that's another thing we'll get into. Um, but continuing on, uh, we got obviously this was directed by George Lucas, um, who usually he has more of a writing background than a directing background. As far as directing, he's done all, one through Star Wars one through six, American Graffiti, and THX uh, eleven thirty eight. Um, as far as writing, obviously, then we add in all the Indiana Jones movies, um, which that was directed by Steven Spielberg. Everybody knows they're good friends. Um, uh, and then he continues to help write for Star Wars to this day. Um, 
So I think that's pretty cool. He comes in and out. Like, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah you'll yeah. see him. Sometimes he's uncredited. He just comes in, uh, does a little bit of writing, and then bounces. But, a little punch work kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, boosts he's, up he's a little still bit. involved you know, in some kind of way uh, yeah, with it, the Star Wars it, it's, franchise. It's definitely, it's still, like, he's still, like, you know, for a, for the majority of the life, it was his baby, and now it's more like his adult son that he has, like, yeah. an influence over, but not, you know, it does his own thing now. It does what Disney's bidding, basically. But, but do you ever still. wonder if he gets that itch to go back and see some of those mistakes or problems that Disney's doing, let's say, that he thinks and wishes he would go back and do it the way he wanted to do it? I, I think... Or when... is all those... Billions of dollars in his face. You can't see because I have two minds about it. We're like, I think it's a little bit of both, but I also think like, if we had it the first way, then you kind of get things like the touch up of the original three, where you kind of get a lot of unnecessary stuff. Well, now, now I'm definitely not doubting this man as a visionary, but we, there has been mistakes, and we've seen it with. I mean, a lot of people put the original original. Higher than sort of the remaster remake that added in the special effects, a couple extra scenes. We were just talking about her earlier. That whole music bit in the the, uh, job of the huts. And it was unfortunate uh, for him that, like, although he did make some questionable decisions on his re-edits later on the line of those original films, he did receive extreme, like, you know, negative feedback and and vile, you know, hatred spewed towards him for those kind of special editions and re-edits he did to the point where, like, I bet, like, now, like, he could voice some of those concerns and say, like, if I was going to do it, I would have done it this way. But in general, like, in terms of, like, getting back into, like, the director's seat or the writer's chair and being like, I'm going to, you know, fix up Star Wars, I think he's totally fine with just leaving it be and letting it do its own thing because, you know, he's already, it's... You know, the world made it very clear to him. They don't want him to, you know, change what was already there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I kind of wish he'd go fix those last three. But <laughs> really well, here's the thing. It's like I was saying before. I don't think he could like, do it better. <laughs> to be honest. Despite, you know, all, all the fame and everything, he's still a very, uh, like, to-himself person. Um, you know, uh, and, and so I, I would imagine that, like... Uh, opening himself up again to, like, sort of that really negative... Because, let's be honest, the, the Star Wars community could be very toxic sometimes. <laughs> oh, my God. Any fandom uh, can be toxic, and, like, it's one of the biggest fandoms in the world. So it, obviously, it is. Like, um, well, know. here's the thing, is, like, you mostly hear negative stuff. Like, we all know we're going to watch it and everything, but, you know, everybody will still complain all the same. But, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes with merit, sometimes not, in my opinion, but whatever. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, I, I would see him not wanting him to open himself up to that again knowing that that's always a possibility when you touch the franchise that's yeah, just yeah. you're gonna open up yeah. yourself up to mass scrutiny um and it's just kind of another fact like i feel like you know he kind of like it's not necessarily flash and pan because like, he's a talented director in his own right but also he's a he's a bit of a peculiar director who has like a little more of like a french study of film and all those kind yeah. of aspects where like he he wants to make his own kind of more experimental and artistic items that don't have necessarily that same mainstream appeal well, here's, in the same way. Here's what's really funny, and I'll throw in a little little fact because uh, it just kind of fits in with the conversation. So there was actually a lot of butting heads between uh, George Lucas and his director of photography, Gil- Gilbert Taylor, um, because Gilbert Taylor was trying to be the director of photography. But because George Lucas came up from you know small sets, he's involved in everything yeah he would constantly try to strong arm his way into stepping on everyone else's toes yeah and so like it would be to the point where um he would uh taylor would have everything all the lights and everything set up on the set he's like all right cool and then george lucas would come and start changing lights 
And he's like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. this is my set. You tell me what you want, and I'll do it, but don't touch my set. Yeah. And so there, there's a lot of butting heads there, and that that came from sort of this uh, uh, very traditional, uh, very hands-on background that George Lucas had, especially because it was a lot of smaller films where he had to be more direct. Yeah. Now he's involved in this bigger project, he ended up stepping on some toes. Yeah, yeah. He had he had a bit of difficulty in like going from like solo ventures of creating film to working as a team on a large project, which is difficult for any kind of project, especially movie making. You know, and uh, he kind of struggled with that a little bit. But um, regardless, I think we're like very focused on like the man behind the movie and less oh, of the movie yeah. itself at this point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So um, now we're uh, music, obviously, by John Williams. Um, you know, he was actually uh, recommended. Steven Spielberg actually recommended him to George Lucas for this movie. Oh, nice, didn't. So, Steven Spielberg an excellent suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, John Williams, a legend. Uh, you know, even without Star Wars, nobody, nobody will ever be able to match what he has done for the movie industry as far as musical oh, scores. Man. Never, <laughs> I, or just like musical scores, like you know, in, like, music in general. His musical, you know, it just few people can match what his. Done, what he's influence. done for cinema, yeah. cinema, cinema <laughs> scores especially. But even in like in just like, the music of all of music, John Williams has a you know a star on that. You know, I think he could have his own podcast one of these. Days that we do it on, oh, yeah. so <laughs> you know, uh, podcast series. <laughs> <laughs> this this was produced by uh, executive producer was George Lucas, and then you had uh, the most hands on producer, uh, which was Gary Koontz, and then uh, the 1997, 1997 special uh, had an additional producer, which was uh, Rick McCallum. Then we had the cinematographer, as pri- uh, previously mentioned, Gilbert Taylor. And then, sorry, I got all my notes jumbled up here. <laughs> oh, we'll get them all. Don't started. worry, there's a whole bunch of jumbled notes here. You know, Star Wars is a mountain. If you thought Jurassic Park was big, don't worry, Star Wars is bigger. <laughs> so uh, I'm only going to mention a couple because there's so many. So you, all, you get everybody has to realize when it comes to sort of the technical specs of this movie that there were multiple releases for it. There was obviously the original, then there was the remake, then there was, I'm sorry, the remaster, and then there was the um, uh, additional releases. As technology changed, the movie was constantly touched up to keep up with technology. Um, So we have everything from a 70 70 millimeter millimeter six track uh, all the way to... Uh, you know, mono 30, uh, 33, 35 millimeter prints to 16 millimeter prints. It's all over the place as far as sound mix goes. Um, and that's the same thing with their uh, aspect ratio. There are so many different aspect ratios. We got like two, uh, 2.2 by one 70 millimeter prints, 2.35 by one theatrical ratio, and so much more. Uh, I, I can probably it, go all go all day naming numbers that don't mean anything to some people. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also incredibly impressive that through all these transitions, it still has at least retained a, a amount of quality where it still is a very good film today. Um, versus like there's some kind of projects like that where you try and bring them up to date or bring in new technology on top of them, and it just like ends up kind of spoiling the whole project. Oh yeah. But even after some of the more infamous additions to Star Wars, it still is an incredible movie so it's a good you know uh the accommodation to the people the teams that um supervise making those updates over the past few decades exactly really impressive stuff there uh so this was done in technicolor uh we have a laboratory so this was edited in a couple different places uh it was deluxe hollywood um for the usa prints and then we also have technicolor hollywood um also in the u.s the film length is 3,300 meters, Sweden. And then, once again, there's a bunch of different film lengths. 
depending on what edition we're looking at. I'm not going to go through all the numbers. There's a lot. Um, <laughs> it is a varied movie in so many ways. Exactly, exactly. You, I mean, that's, that's another thing. Like, you could make like, 100 different cuts of this movie now based off like all the editions you had and all the editions. Like, you can slice them up in 100 different ways and the fans have taken that and done it for and it's Pretty much. of interesting success and failures. I've, I've really appreciated it. Uh, but... Uh, with all the technical stuff, I think the biggest highlight of this movie is, and you know, obviously we'll get into it deeper, um, but the special effects that this movie brought, a lot of amazing practical effects that they had to invent, more or less, uh, because special effects really weren't to where he wanted it to be to do what he wanted to do. You know, he wanted to make this, you know, uh, uh, you know, yeah. big sci-fi setting, but also the technology wasn't there to produce what he needed. Yeah. And so he created uh, Industrial Light and Magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, once he opened that up, this was, uh, they opened up in, uh, it was founded in May 26, uh, 1975. So two years before. Yeah. Um, so then that's where they did a lot of their practical effects, their special effects. And uh, I actually have a clip uh, with an interview with George Lucas that I really wanted to put in because I think it's better in his own words how he explains sort of that journey of creating uh, ILM and what it meant to him and what it meant to the movie and what it's meant for special mm-hmm. effects in general as far as movies go. Yeah, they took the they took the first steps in so many avenues of special effects that we still even see today and use today. Absolutely, and ILM influence. still operates today, and they yeah. they they're, they're huge, still now. incredible. <laughs> um, it, oh yeah, they they work on so many different movies. So yeah, here's that clip right now. Well, as I say, when I was up here in San Francisco, we had no mixing facilities up here. We had no editing facilities up here. So I had to create, you know, Zoetrope basically was an editing mixing facility uh, when it got sort of um, kiboshed in the, the what we call the Black Tuesday uh, massacre of all our scripts and THX and everything, and we were all thrown to the winds. Uh, I realized I was going to have to start my own, you know, buy my own editing equipment uh, and eventually build my own little mixing studio so that I could make my movies. Um, the idea up here was that we didn't build sound stages. We went and shot anywhere in the world we wanted to shoot the movie, and then we'd come back here and finish them. So we'd write them here and finish them here, but we'd actually make them somewhere else in the world. Um, and uh, so I needed a facility to do that, which is really where Skywalker Ranch uh, came from. Originally it was a little house in, in San Anselmo, uh, and then after Star Wars, it uh, we outgrew that, and I, I built this place. The thing about visual effects is when I did Star Wars, um, I had an idea of doing this crazy 1930s serial action-adventure film, and the idea was it would be very, very fast-paced and very exciting. Um, and uh, the problem was is there really were no special effects facilities at that time. Uh, the Doug Trumbull had the closest thing to a special effects facility, but he was trying to be a director and direct features, and he'd retired from the special effects business at that point. So I went to a few of the people that worked for him that were doing sort of industrial films for the planetariums or people that were doing Pillsbury Doughboy commercials and that sort of thing, and then a lot of college kids because they're just, you know, uh, apart from uh, an occasional map painter at Disney or doing Bond films, there really wasn't any industry. None of the studios had special effects departments anymore. They'd all been abandoned. So I was sort of forced to start my own company in order to make the movie. And uh, that's really how ILM got started in the first place. And I knew that I wanted something that that was going to sort of 
I had to push the limits of the technology of the film medium in order to make this movie work. I couldn't have just spaceships slowly moving through the frame. I wanted to be able to pan with them, move with them. To get that vocabulary added to my lexicon, uh, I needed to invent some new technology, which is what we did at at ILM. We were able to create um, uh, motion control cameras that locked the foregrounds and the backgrounds together so I could have much more freedom of movement. In that case, I was able to then have shorter shots and do have a much more kinetic visual style to the film. And, um, uh, you know, as, since I was making three of these, I kept ILM going through all three films. And eventually we took on outside projects to, you know, to pay for the people that worked there in between the times I was making my movies. And it turned eventually into a big company. All right, so that was a little interview clip that I wanted to put in. Um, Because once again, I think uh, when it comes to ILM, it was something that George Lucas created. And as you heard, um, you know, it it, it meant a lot to him in the project. Uh, And from there, we can finally move on to my favorite part, the... Award. Well, that sounded a little flat. It sounded like you were clapping in space. Over I was there. excited. <laughs> Don't be a negative, Nancy. Now, there are a lot of awards, and we have a lot to cover. So in lieu of the massive amount of information we're getting through, I'm just going to go over some of the major awards. But I will mention that this movie, between 1977 and 2012... Looking at 58 awards, winning awards, and 29 nominations. Just ridiculous. (laughs) That is a lot. I mean, we've done some movies with two. (laughs) We've done some movies with none. I mean, we've done some movies with none. And we've done like movies that are good movies with only like like 12. You know, 12 is a lot, but this raking in 20 or 58 and it's it's insane. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Academy Awards USA 1978. They won Best Art Direction and Set Decoration. And I will name some of these names because they're worth mentioning. Because um, uh, they worked hard and they earned the win, for sure. So um, when we're looking at uh, Best Art Direction, we got John Barry, Norman Reynolds, uh, Leslie Dilly, and Roger Christen. We got Best Costume Design by John Molo. And my gosh, the costume design. Like, it's all iconic to this day. Well, what do you mean? <laughs> it was just a bunch of togas. <laughs> Here, here's Princess Leia. That's all Hollywood is. Put a brooch on it. Oh, it's, it's a toga. That's hey, here's Luke Skywalker. Let's put a belt around him. It's a toga. <laughs> that, that's always what's been great is they, they just took what they had and they just tweaked it slightly to make it look more, but you know. One thing that I always thought was something that played on their their costumes is you always knew the good guy from the bad guy because it was light and dark. Oh, yeah. Um, and I thought that was very cool because, you know, like Princess Leia, Luke, even like Hans Undershirt was all wearing white. Yep. And then you had Darth Vader was wearing black. All those officers were wearing black. TIE fighter pilots wearing it's, black. It's the whole like cowboys and bandits, classic Hollywood <laughs> stuff. It's like right. it's just people in white for good, it's just people in black for bad. You know, and that's, you know, <laughs> incredible. Right? It's just intelligent filmmaking, a really quick way of saying like, this is good, this is bad. Go good, for it. Bad. Simplistic morality. <laughs> Let's not put the gray on here. <laughs> Uh, we got Best Sound, uh, so we got Don McDougal, Ray West, Bob Milker, Deck, er, Derek Ball, and um, unfortunately, Derek Ball wasn't uh, present at the awards ceremony, um, but he is 
definitely part of the crew that created a lot of the uh, sounds. He absolutely contributed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's um, why he got a participation award. <laughs> yeah, the participation award. Yeah, exactly. They won Best Film Editing. Uh, Paul Hershish, uh, Marisha Lucas, Richard Chu. We got... Best effects, Chewy. <laughs> so best effects, uh, uh, visual effects. Um, John Steers, John Discra. Wow, well, I knew I was going to butcher that. Oh, we Terrence. <laughs> there would be a right? birthday episode without a Terrence. Uh, Richard Eldlun, Grant McCure, and Robert Balak. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a bad guy in Mortal Kombat? <laughs> <laughs> um, best music original score, obviously, John Williams. Uh, they won Special Achievement Award, uh, Ben Burnt, uh, for special sound effects uh, for the creation of the alien creature and robot voices. Um, which is really interesting because, uh, particularly like Chewie was used, you know, with various amount of animal sounds and stuff like that. So maybe really <laughs> oh, we'll get to all that here in a little <laughs> oh, bit. Oh yeah. Uh, and then they were nominated uh, for Best Picture, um, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Best Director, and Best Writing Screenplay directly for the screen. It's nomination, so I usually don't dip into the details. Golden Globes, USA, 1978. They won the Golden Globe for Best Original Score, Motion Picture, John Williams. Uh, they were nominated for Best Motion Picture Drama, Best Director, Motion Picture, and Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Motion Picture. Then we have the... <laughs> Moving on. Nothing to see. 1979. Uh, they won um, the Anthony Asquish Award for Film Music, John Williams. Uh, winner for BAFTA Film Award for Best Sound. Uh, then they were nominated for the BAFTA Film Award, uh, Best Costume Design, Best Film, Best Film Editing. And best production design and art direction. Best toga design. Mm. <laughs> uh, Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, USA, nineteen seventy-eight. A lot of winnings here. We got <laughs> best supporting actor Alec Guinness, best director George Lucas. Did uh, you say Guinnesses? Guinnesses? Is that Guinnesses of World Book of Records? Uh, Alec, Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness. Um, my Guinnesses of Alec Guinness. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great party time. Be on the minus, not my fault. Uh, best director, George Lucas, tied with Steven Spielberg for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, best writing, George Lucas. Best music, John Williams. Also tied with himself, John Williams for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, I'd like to thank John Williams for this great, uh, you know, participation uh, contest. Yeah, and I'd like to thank you, John Williams. I, I feel like in the history of this podcast, there's always like once a month where you see awards where like the person that year was competing with themselves once or twice. Well, but usually, you, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to think, we're just like, we I was like, well, you had one legend, he made three films that year. And so I was like, well, obviously, like, we're choosing one of his three. That's just how it goes. I'm sorry. We got uh, Best Costumes, John Molo, Best Makeup, uh, Rick Baker, uh, Stuart Freeborn, Best Special Effects, uh, John Discra, that name I cannot say, uh, and John Steers. Outstanding Editing, uh, Paul Hershish, uh, Mika Lucas, and Richard Chu. Outstanding Sound, Ben Burt, Don McDougall, and Sam F. Shaw. Outstanding Art Direction, Norman Reynolds, uh, and Leslie Dilly. Outstanding set direction, Roger Christensen. 
And then we have winner for special award, outstanding cinematographer, Gilbert Taylor, nominated for best actor, Harrison Ford, and best actor, Mark Hamill. And right. best actress, Carrie Fisher, and best supporting actor, Peter Cushing. Dracula. <laughs> and that's all for the awards. Whew. I'm winded, and that's not even the beginning. And I don't even, I don't even <laughs> think, uh, don't you still have some other stuff in there on the filming aspects I do. of it? I was, I was going to sprinkle it in. With oh, the rest you of want to just sprinkle. Yeah, you want to be like the, sprinkle. you want to be the sprinkles on top in. of the ice cream. Easy, yeah. Jimbo. The man needs to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is episode one, Terrence. Episode two would be Kyle. Part three would be Jimbo. <laughs> <laughs> Return like, to the Jimbo. <laughs> Return to the Jimbo. Like Game of Thrones chapters. <laughs> just one character from color. <laughs> You know, and, and part two would be called The Millennial Strikes Back. <laughs> <laughs> part three, so, Return of the Jedi Jimbo. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've given the honor of the cast from now on to the Millennial Terrence, or not Terrence, well, he, Terrence is a Millennial, Terrence is too. millennial too. He's just an elder but Millennial. But not the <laughs> Millennial. That's why. The like. baby Millennial. Uh, we've given the cast to Kyle uh, from now on to help alleviate some of the research. He does a really good job. So, Kyle, why don't you go ahead and take away the cast? (laughs) Don't build you up like that just to let you fall. (laughs) Yeah, don't don't build me up. He's going to do the best job ever. And then he's like, anyways, Mark Hamill. And and you're fired. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Starting for the cast of Star Wars, A New Hope, Episode 4 or 1, two and a half. (laughs) Who knows at this point? It'll change in five years. Don't (laughs) quote me on that. Disney Plus, you'll take it away. Um, <laughs> all right, so starting with the cast here, we of course have Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. Mark Hamill, of course, best known for his role as Luke Skywalker. He's the most iconic role, but a close follow-up to that would be his role as the main voice of the Joker mm-hmm. in the Batman animated series and many of the Batman animated, and animated movies even. He's so, a phenomenal voice actor. Oh, man. I would say like, I, I prefer him more as a voice actor than ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you know. um, also, in a recent voice actor work he was um he was chucky in the recent child slay movie mm-hmm. um also he did a um he did a guest appearance on what we do in the shadows uh, one of my oh, favorite shows yeah. he did that episode. it was really <laughs> good yeah a really great show so he's he's still doing acting jobs right now and uh, really doing a great job of it so he's having a, a fun he's time it, yeah yeah he's just <laughs> guys clearly in his golden years of just like <laughs> i did i did the biggest thing in the world i'm just gonna play around now <laughs> pretty much I, I appreciate that and love it so harrison I, mark mark hamill <laughs> great guy from all counts um, next up, we have another great actor, Harrison Ford. One of my personal favorite actors of all time. Uh, he doesn't yeah. care about anything. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think that's more of a persona he keeps up, in my personal opinion. But, uh, well, he but, has I, helped rescue a lot of people by flying his own aircraft in to rescue people and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I'm saying, when I say that, I mean he doesn't care about movies. Oh, no. no, 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 no <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he definitely views the, the, the... Like, it's just a job to him, and I find that fascinating, because he's such an amazing actor who's so disconnected. Wasn't it the future? Wasn't it the future? that we did and he was like I haven't even watched it, yeah, it was, he, like, watched he could really not care less about the yeah. movies he creates he's a, he's a he, give him that paycheck he, let him go the man right. is a worker for, first and foremost he, like, the man just he puts in the time he gets the job done and he doesn't care about the art and he goes not home really. and forgets about it you know, uh, <laughs> well, like, he cares about his performance but he doesn't like he's not like a connoisseur of the art himself and cares about the films in that way at least nor from does how he, he presents hold himself. any connection in any way exactly and, that and, clear. and you know what right. all more power to him it's endearing in its own way and I love him to death but of course Harrison Ford <laughs> perhaps perhaps best known for his role of Han Solo but secondly and probably and possibly and probably more importantly as Indiana Jones of course two like, of the greatest characters of film history right there yeah, yeah. and two of the best movies ever made and a few other ones <laughs> <laughs> 
and not only that, but uh, directed by Steven Spielberg and George Steven Lucas. Steven Spielberg, you know, yeah. George Lucas, so a long detailed career. He was in American Graffiti, um, Witness. Yeah, um, Decker, Caden, Blade Runner, American the Fugitive. Fugitive, The Fugitive, Witness, um, all around just amazing actor who is always a delight to see in any movie you watch. Um, you know, he's even in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. I just noticed that yeah. when I was watching it yesterday. I was like... Wait a minute. It's not even like a thing you notice. Right. Like, he's not even was, like in a big role. He's just like kind of there. It's a serious role. And I was like, is that? I had to look closely. He was wearing yeah. glasses. It's, it's, like, it's not like a Harrison Ford. It is Han Solo. It's just like he's just there. Yeah, he's wearing glasses. He's just doing kind of like, I think it's like kind of like a. But like we'll a, get to that here in a couple of weeks. So. Yeah, we'll get to that later. I don't know if we not, we did announce that. <laughs> um, anyways, next up we have the legendary and late Carrie Fisher, um, best known definitely for her role in Princess Leia and uh, in all the you know the best Star Wars films, and um, she also started movies like The Blues Brothers and The Burbs, and um, also was known for doing a lot of great um, script work for the most of her career. When she wasn't acting, oh, she was man. known for she, like she had a she, she had a master class in SAS, and oh man, it, it made her so endearing, and just so such a joy to watch. And, like, like interviews and everything that like yeah are, but she, she definitely had a, a, like a rough journey something sure, about though. Carrie Fisher is uh, Celebration 2 I think it was two. I went to 2 and 3 they were both in downtown Indianapolis yeah. and this was before the uh, episode 2 came out or episode 3 um, and I went down there and I stood in line down at the back at the RCA Dome Hoosier Dome whatever, where the Colts used to play for 8.5 hours just Ooh. to get a chance to get uh, Carrie Fisher's autograph which I have Great. but um you know, she said she would stay there and sign everybody that was in line up to a certain point. She would sign everybody's thing, but um, she was uh, like a chain smoker, dude. Like she oh, always yeah. had to step outside, and, you know, and she was. Re- well, she's been very open, I, I believe, about her addictions. I, I, and yeah, stuff. yeah, I, I forgot what it's called, um, and I wish I remembered so we can plug it in. But but she wrote a book, and she talked about a lot of those things. She talked about like her addictions to multiple things. Um, you know, she talks about sort of uh, like her journey in the film industry, some of her hardships that she had to do uh, go through and overcome, and um, like where she ended up was definitely not without struggle. Uh, but you know, before she unfortunately passed away, um, you know, she she hit a point to which she was comfortable, and uh, you know, she was over a lot of the things that were uh, sort of you know plugging her. And right. She, yeah. And uh, I'm just gonna look. I just like did a quick cursory search to see what book she'd written like there's a the um wish carrie fisher wrote wishful drinking shockaholic the best awful there is and uh, a bunch of other few books did so she, she do one called like the princess diaries or yes the, the princess so, diaries yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a good that's a good one yeah um great you know and that, that's a thing where it's just like and i've in, heard experts of all of them it's I, i've been meaning to get to those books they sound all like like just a really good time to read yeah you know and, and it's just like you know mark hamill and harrison ford i do think of them as like actors first and foremost um carrie fisher though i see as a personally heroic in my own way ever since he ever ever struggles with addiction how she overcame those things and let her best and tried to lead her best life possible um, despite her struggles i can see her heroic in that portion but um first and foremost i think of her as a, a great writer um oh, a great yeah. you know the, the, you know he's at the master of, of sass and all those oh, kind of yeah. things like she is an incredible person in that right of just um uh kind of an unspoken hero in hollywood in many respects just for how many like movies she actually had a hand in but later was like uncredited for and stuff like that where it's just incredible deep story stuff so like the more like the more i can talk about her on the podcast the better and the more you can read <laughs> about her on, by yourself the better because she has a fascinating interesting life and love her to death and miss her to this day yeah <laughs> Now, um, next up, we're moving on to um, uh, actors who were, frankly, legends even at the time of filming Star Wars. They were, these are were the actors who were 
critical thespians who were built to like give the movie credibility. Uh, first off, here we got um, Peter Cushing as Peter Cush, Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin. Um, you know, um, he's of course the original Dracula. Yeah, the most not the original. The yeah, most I was gonna say we know yeah, some fighting words right yeah. here, man. That was Bella Lugosi. We <laughs> yeah, was sorry, yeah, that Bella Lugosi. Even but Terrence I, was like, "Get ready, come out of his chair!" Like, I, I, I didn't mean millennials. I consider, I consider Peter Cushing the most iconic Dracula, in my opinion. That's who I prefer when I think of Dracula. I think of Peter Cushing. I think he's a great actor, and um, you know, many other roles. So that Return of Frankenstein, you know, the Curse of Dracula, and all those kind of things were just like. Fantastic actor, love him to death. And even when they did his um, digital resurrection in Rogue One, I appreciated him. (laughs) (laughs) Which wasn't really him, but it wasn't really him. But also, it was nice to see you know his character come alive again, at least his uh, appearance, yeah, his image, yeah. And it's interesting to see like his place in history as being like the start of the digital reconstruction of actors, which has its own. Uh, you know, detailed discussions to be had <laughs> in your future. <laughs> um, next up, we have uh, the probably the most uh, famous actor of the time of the movie releasing, Al Guinness mm-hmm. as Obi Wan Kenobi. Um, he was, of course, known for Lauren, uh, being he's in Lawrence of Arabia, Bridge of River Kwai, um, wherever Kwai, I can't, can't pronounce the word properly. Murder by death. Yeah, murder by death. Oliver Twist. I just um, watched Murder by Death the other day, and he plays a blind butler. Yeah, and it's kind of along the huh. line side of the clue. Is he's pretty funny in it? Yeah, so um, he's just an uh, incredible actor. He kind of like didn't understand the film at all, but still, like he he knew the language and gravitas to lend to the work, and is a great actor. And um, overall, um, <laughs> had a great long career. So love him to death. Um, you know, great actor. Watch more stuff. Next up, we have Anthony Daniels as C three PO. Anthony Daniels um, doesn't do much acting outside of Star Wars, actually, but he has appeared as himself. He has appeared as C three PO, and I believe every Star Wars movie up to this point still. Um, oh, yeah, he's the yeah, he's. Like, I, I believe every Star Wars yeah. film, uh, but I believe like C three PO and R two D two are like the two characters who appeared in each Star Wars film, I believe. And uh, C and Anthony Daniels is the only actor who uh, appeared in all of the films yep. thus far. I believe that still holds true now. Um, actually, he, he may not have been in Han Solo. The solo movie, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, the three PO and R two D two weren't in that movie. Yeah, so okay, so <laughs> that didn't fall, didn't fall through. But uh, the right, major right movies, the major was, movies, you see, three PO has been in every single one, and it has been Anthony Daniels portraying him, and uh, <laughs> you know, so he's a you know great part of Star Wars legacy. He's on right. Next up, we have Kenny Baker as R two D two. You know, a uh, good actor. Um, doesn't really appear in anything else. Largely just played R two D two in a few movies, and a uh, great actor in his own right. Next up, we have Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca, uh, the 200-year-old Wookiee. Um, <laughs> he performed that role in multiple films and uh, even came back for uh, not uh, Force Awakens. And yep. that was one of his final roles he played for his late passing. Next up, we have the, um, the, the actor but not voice of Darth Vader, uh, David Prose. And then we have the voice by James, the legendary James Earl Jones, still acting today, doing great stuff. You'll know him from, of course, like movies like Lion King and Come to America, and most importantly, as the voice of Darth Vader. You know, and so that makes up the casting list. Um, other actors, actually, including the two, was like Phil Brown, Shayla Frailer, as like um, Uncle Luke's Owen. uncles and yeah. aunt, and like that. Man, and brood. so, um, a nice all-around cast, but those are the major roles that are. Um, Worth noting in this podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, there you had it. Kyle Zayner with the cast. Yes. Now, 
buckle your seatbelts because we are getting ready to dive into some of the history, the lore, uh, things in this movie that some stuff I didn't even know about, some facts. Um, so this is probably going to go into at least a second part, if not yeah. a third part. So because Terrence likes to go down these little rabbit holes at times, and we'll be talking on one subject. For I love first. my rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bro. If you've been here all day, it's like we didn't say anything. <laughs> and so here we go. So like, because we all have uh, like little facts and stuff. We like round robin it or yeah. Well, just mounds uh, of information. Yeah, I'll just talk for a little bit. <laughs> then once I, I'll just point to you or Kyle or if if but to get tired with their stuff. Well, I'm saying, man, there's, there's probably sixty pages. Yeah. Here. Got so, a book. Yeah. When this runs out of breath, we'll, we'll pick up slack, you know, <laughs> we'll pass the baton. <laughs> All right, so here we go. George Lucas was so sure this movie would flop that instead of attending the premiere, he went on vacation to Hawaii with Steven Spielberg <laughs> when they came up with the ideal for Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark after they found out Star Wars became a success. I actually, in fact, to add that too, 20th Century Fox was a bit of a bop as well, that they spent most of their marketing that year on the movie Damnation Alley in 1977 instead of the movie. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. No, Who no. Damnation Alley? Oh, right. Nobody. I don't even think I've heard of it. Funny Podcast enough, coming up soon. Funny <laughs> enough, I, I also have a little tidbit on it. The same thing. Okay. <laughs> I was surprised. Thing, like, that was my first Not only that, that, I have that a tidbit on Terrence's tidbit. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to call this Tiddly wings. But wait, there's more. <laughs> right. Same, wow. So, so as, as we discussed before, um, nobody took it seriously. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm trying to find, I should have labeled these. <laughs> so, it's yeah, about the journey. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, no, nobody took this. There it is. Um, we found it. I found it, found it. So, yeah, yeah as, as we were saying before, so nobody took this seriously, including the crew. As a matter of fact, most of the time, uh, you know, the crew considered this to be a childish film or a children's film. Uh, so they rarely took really anything seriously, and they found it unintentionally humorous as they were filming. Um, all, all the way to the fact that uh, um, actors... Uh, confessed that they thought the film would be a failure. Harrison Ford even found it strange that, uh, quote-unquote, there was a princess with weird buns in her hair. <laughs> oh, he, he still finds it weird for the stay. Yeah, <laughs> and he, uh, he constantly called Chewie uh, a giant monkey in a suit. <laughs> yeah. and that's that's another aspect I think we'll get later to in the podcast as well. It's like This this wasn't a film that I felt like was either like cynically made or that anyone knew that it was going to be big. Everyone kind of came at it like through a sincere... Um, want to just kind of make a, a good enough film or entertaining enough film yeah. and ended up just like hitting the nail on the head of exactly what everyone in America wanted that year and didn't know about. Well, you know? not only that, but you got to remember Alec Guinness was the a fam- famous actor by this point. He's done a lot in his career. And we'll get to, I got some stuff in the notes about um, how he perceived, because it was like, I think it was Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford said that, you know, they would goof off on the set, but when he came around, you know, they were they had to straighten up because he didn't take no no nonsense from them. So, uh, but I got a lot more about Alec Guinness in here about why he didn't really care for these movies. So we'll get to that here in a little bit. It'd be interesting to see, like, if, if Alec Guinness was alive today, what he would think, well, oh, I know, right? he'd be, I know he, would, today. he would be like in his paychecks. <laughs> yeah, 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 he'd be in his paychecks, but also like what he would think of the film industry today would be so drastically different from what he thought it would be. <laughs> so here we go. George Lucas' decision to accept a lower salary on the movie in exchange for full merchandising rights was considered a fool's gamble on his part. Toys based on movies had never been major, or major money earners 
because of the long gap between the, when a movie would go through its theatrical run and when any products based on it would be available. This movie, however, was such a phenomenon that it reached the holiday 1977 sales period in full swing and changed the way movies were merchandised forever. And how the rights are given, like, now, like, yeah. no movie games today can, like, the rights go to, like, the director or something like that. Like, last case, yeah. we were, like... The, like the, the latest case remember was like George R. R. Martin with the Game of oh, Thrones yeah, series. Like, yeah. there's some aspects of like, oh, he already signed away the deals to like merchandise for like beer and stuff like that. They had to <laughs> well, I remember off, something like, else about like um, business movie. Um, for sure. Was a Snakes on a Plane where that thing had sold the most merchandise or whatever before a movie had been released. Yeah, because the really? title is perfect. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you buy it for the title. You don't buy it for anything else. Right. <laughs> Uh, the actors found George Lucas to be very uncommunicative towards them, with his only directions generally being either faster or more intense. Yeah. <laughs> At one point, when he temporarily lost his voice, the crew provided him with a board with just those two phrases written on it. <laughs> yep. I feel like that's Jimbo's advice a lot of times, too. <laughs> well, that, that comes Shut into up, play Tanner. where... <laughs> that, that comes into, Kyle. I'm more, intense. more intense. <laughs> so so that, that actually comes into play to, like, sort of his demeanor and how he sort of was as a person which is you know he's very to himself and 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 all that so when it came to directing it was the the whole style of it being this huge production it was very new and 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 sort of removed from what he's done you gotta remember he's probably under a lot of pressure too because those like thx or whatever uh those were smaller budgeted movies here you are, you're, you're messing with millions of dollars right now, you know what I mean? And you probably got yeah. those executives and studio people breathing down your neck. Exactly. I breathe down his neck. Plus, uh, he's not like, like he's, he's he has films under his experience, but he still hasn't like, he hasn't made anything to this scale, and he isn't like that experience. So right. here's where I can actually interject this this bit. So Go for this, it. The movie was not, didn't do well for him as far as like health-wise. Like, right. During production... I thought he had uh, a heart attack, did he? <laughs> yeah, so, so the cast would constantly try to perk him up. They tried to make him laugh and smile because he was often like just like visually depressed. Um, at one point, the project came so de- became so demanding that uh, he was diagnosed with hypertension and exhaustion and was warned to reduce his stress level. Um, the post-production was also equally as stressful on him. Uh, and this was due to, you know, 20th Century Fox just breathing down his neck, telling him to get it done, all that stuff. And um, it didn't help that when Mark Hamill got in a car accident and his face was, uh, once his face got visibly scarred, um, that restricted their reshoots. So there was a lot of things right. that they couldn't do reshooting-wise because of that car accident. Wasn't the reshooting stuff done that Empire Strikes Back, I believe, so, his motorcycle accident? Because I believe right. they had to, like, remake him as, like, a Ken doll, basically, when they did that. So that wasn't in the original film. I mean, oh, got, no, I mean, this, this was uh, uh, a different accident, I believe. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So I, <laughs> Mark Hamill had a lot of bad luck. George Lucas <laughs> had a lot of bad luck. But somehow they made one of the greatest movies, uh, greatest films of the century. <laughs> the skeleton that C-3PO passes uh, belongs to a t- t- Tatooine creature called a Greater Crate Dragon. This oh, artificial yeah. skeleton was left in the Tunisian desert after filming and is still there. During filming of Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones in 2002... This site was visited by a crew once more, and the skeleton was still there. Uh, in the Mandalorian Chapter Nine, the Marshal locals on Tatooine joined with sand people to fight and kill one of those serpents. So that was pretty cool to see. One of the best episodes in that whole series, right? Now. Road, road trip. We're going right. to Tunisia to see the Green <laughs> Exactly. Uh, in early drafts of the script, R two D two could speak standard English, and he had a rather foul vocabulary. <laughs> Although all of R two D 2s English speech was removed, many of C three PO's reactions to it were left in. So <laughs> they play off each other so well. <laughs> they really do. Um, 
the scene. By the way, we're jumping all over this movie, and I'm sure almost everybody has seen this movie. So just for the record, we're going to be all over the place because there is no way to categorize these notes. Oh yeah, there's, there's, there's so much here. We're just shooting yeah. it all out, and um, having fun. The scene of Darth Vader's TIE fighter spinning out of control was added late in the movie at the insistence of George Lucas. Also, the name for the TIE fighter was made just because it looked like a bow tie by George Lucas himself. <laughs> and you know what TIE stands for? What does TIE stand for, Jimbo? Twin Ion Engines. Ooh. I think that's what it is. It's in the notes somewhere. I it know, sounds I just right. It. <laughs> at least I made this out. I, I, I will right? leave you blindly about uh, that. Right? <laughs> other members of this movie crew were opposed to including this shot, feeling that it set up a sequel. At that time, sequels were generally regarded as inferior cash-in movies. Well, this guy cashed in for years. Definitely a cash in, but not inferior. But Lucas insisted upon its inclusion nonetheless. According to Harrison Ford, during the making of this movie, uh, here it is where he and Mark Hamill would fool around and not commit to the work, but whenever Sir Alec Guinness was on on set. So when he said when he was there, they became really professional. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, James Earl Jones, who voiced Darth Vader, and David Prowse, who played Darth Vader, never met. David Prowse, I don't believe he was even aware that James Earl Jones was voicing his Oh, yeah. He we'll didn't know until was, post-production. Yeah. He was mad. We'll get to that here in a little bit. So, yeah, <laughs> so. Also, interesting fact about um, the the one previous to that. Which one was that? About Sorry. the uh, acting behavior professional. Behavior. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so funny enough, that's how people act with Harrison Ford now when they're on set. Um, uh, that happened with uh, Blade Runner. Um, it was, you know, once Harrison Ford's on set. It, he was kind of like the... Um, uh, like the main sort of the Godfather, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like people like looked. He's like he's been in the industry so long, done so many iconic roles. Um, that particularly uh, Ryan Gosling like really looked to him to like for a lot of advice and stuff like that. While George filming uh, was filming on location in Tunisia, the Libyan government became concerned about a massive military vehicle parked near the Libyan border. <laughs> Consequently, the Tunisian government receiving threats of military mobilization politely asked Lucas to move. The Jawa Sandcrawler farther away from their border. Admittedly, if you had no idea what that was, that'd be very intimidating. It was, but, but yeah. you know, I never knew it was a big thing. I thought maybe it was just a little thing. But like it I'm was not sure he's on yeah. a yeah, small set, but right. no, they built a giant there, thing. There's a couple things they really did go all out. Um, there's also a handful of things that were uh, miniatures. Actually. I wonder right. if they still went full all out for like movies like, um, like no, well, even like Mandalorian or Rogue One or something like that, where they actually use those giant vehicles. I wonder if they um, repurposed their own I mean, there's a lot of things that they've built for practical effects. Yeah, you know, you know I think that's definitely a mainstay of the Star Wars franchise now because of the original movies. Like practical effects be used commonly even now, right. which is great. And do they you, have the budget. Yeah. Do you know the famous scene in this movie where uh, Luke Skywalker and Mark or uh, Carrie Fisher, well, Princess Leia? They do that thing where they throw the the, uh, the grappling hook, I call it, or whatever rope around, and they do that oh, famous yeah, swing over yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. They did that themselves, and they did it in one take. Oh, nice. No stunt doubles were used. I thought that was crazy. <laughs> um, Harrison Ford didn't learn his lines for the intercom conversation of the cell block so that it would sound spontaneous when he's like, oh, yeah, everything's fine here. Ah, shoot. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> How are you? <laughs> everything's fine. Yeah. You know, I love that scene. Definitely I did too. <laughs> uh, the lightsaber sound effect is a combination of the hum of an idling 35 millimeter movie projector uh, and the feedback generated by passing a stri- uh, stripped microphone cable by a television. The things, you, the things they come up with for sound effects, you know what I mean? It's just amazing. Yeah, it's it, always it's a it's a den of insane creativity because like who even it discovers well, this you, noise? Here's the thing: it's like <laughs> it's usually just culminated together with like a massive amounts of imagination, and then b just kind of using what you have around you to be like, let's see what sounds we can make, or like you have an idea of what sound you want, and you just try to 
think of different things that might create that sound and then make a mixture of things that get as close as you can. Right. And, you know, a lot of uh, 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 people who create sound for, uh, for movies, games, uh, all kinds of stuff, they still do that to this day. It's, it's, it's a whole art. <laughs> yes. yes. So George, uh, before this film was released, George showed a rough cut to a group of his friends. A lot of the, you know, the spacings and all that was still stock footage of old World War II films because he hadn't made them yet. Yeah, made them yeah. himself. So he went around the room afterwards and says, you know, what'd you think of it? So most people in the room was like, what were you thinking? <laughs> uh, Brian D. Palma reportedly called it the worst movie ever. I mean, that's, that's, that's saying something now. Um, Don't hold back. Just let me know your they, feelings. They said uh, everyone, even Lucas, felt that this movie was going to be the biggest flop of all time. There was only one person that stood up and said, it's going to be the biggest movie of all time and make millions of dollars. Do you know who that person was? Yeah. Who was that person? Steven Spielberg. Steven, Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. He yeah. believed in his and friend. they all looked up at him. They all looked up at him because they all looked up to him and said, "Poor Steven." <laughs> the ultimate bro, he's Steven drank, Spielberg. He's drank the right. yeah. lead. The ultimate wingman. Uh, the name Wookie later became the lead. <laughs> the name Wookie came about as a result of an accident when San Francisco DJ Terrence McGovern was doing voiceover work on THX 1138 in 1971 for George Lucas. He made a blunder and exclaimed, I think I ran over a Wookiee back there. <laughs> George Lucas confused as what he meant by the term. Terrence is like, I have no idea. So maybe it's just the name Terrence. <laughs> I don't know what, they, what they're talking about. Terrence and words. It's like you name your kid Terrence and their tongue just twists and a nod. But, never George, out of it. but George Lucas never forgot that moment and incorporated into this movie, which is awesome. Mm. It's great. Mark Hamill uh, held his breath for so long during the trash compactor scene that he broke a blood vessel in his face. Oh, jeez. Subsequent shots are oh shot, uh, shown from only one side only. Can you imagine? He held his breath for a long time. Yeah. I, you know. Um, Oh, here's here's the thing about Carrie Fisher. Uh, due to the limited budget, the American cast members and crew, including George Lucas, all decided to fly coach class to England rather than first class. But when famous actress Debbie Reynolds, who was Carrie Fisher's mother, heard that her daughter would be flying coach, she called Lucas and complaining about how insulting it was for her daughter to be flying coach. <laughs> Fisher was in the room with Lucas when he took the call and after a few minutes asked if she could talk to her mother. When Lucas handed her the phone, she simply said, Mother... I want to fly coach. Will you F off? <laughs> and hung up the phone. Classic Carrie Fisher. Like, That's classic. Even well. the beginning, not an act. She's, she's legit the real deal. Uh, this was the first movie to make over 300 million domestic box office. It was also the first movie to cross 500 million worldwide in its initial release. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder what these all these people that didn't think it was going to do at the movie they just... all ate their words. And I wonder what Lucas is thinking like. <laughs> Yeah. I'm I wonder when I wonder I wonder the exact moment he was like, I got something here. You know, right? I don't know how big it's going to be, but it's big. I, I mean, I, I think at that moment he's like, oh no, I have to make t- more. He didn't, but he didn't have to. <laughs> no, he didn't. But at well, the same time, did. though, he had to. Yeah, <laughs> you make something called episode you know, four. I, you're at least going to make something. I think else. it's something like I don't think you can understand that over the course of your entire life. I bet George Lucas is still trying to comprehend like why was this the biggest thing in the world. For <laughs> I me? think he's still trying to figure out. What his original one through three was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, what would I have done if it was just like a moderate success and I just had my own creative rights to do what I wanted with it versus like what I had to do eventually make the biggest thing in the world and sell Ewok toys? <laughs> On the first day of filming in the deserts of Tunisia, the country experienced its first major rainstorm in 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> what luck. Yeah. 
Oh, here you go. Now, we all know uh, Lucas and Spielberg were really good friends. So, um, Luke, or, uh, Lucas visited the Close Encounters of the Third Kind set in 1977 because Lucas was sure this movie would outperform the yet-to-be-released Star Wars at the box office. Spielberg was like, no, I disagree. Yours is going to be a bigger hit. So, and the, and the idea of getting a compensation uh, if, if Star Wars office uh, was a box office bomb, Lucas proposed a gentleman's pact as they were close friends from the university, trading two and a half percent of the profit on each other's movies. <laughs> Spielberg accepted the deal, and he still receives two and a half percent of the profits from this movie, as Lucas <laughs> receives the same from Close Encounters. That's great. So <laughs> let's just say, how much was that that he just made off two and a half percent? I That's mean, bad everybody. <laughs> I was like, it's just because he's your friend. You know what I mean? But but. But Lucas is like, man, I need to get something out of this. You know, I spent all this time and money, and I, I might as well get something out of it. Always, you know, just it's the company you keep. Make friends with rich people, folks. <laughs> <laughs> just selfishly do that. Well, Kyle, there, there's the door. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I better get out of here. <laughs> the the um, 20th Century Fox att- uh, attempted to distribute this movie in the U.S. Fewer than 43 years would agree to show it. As a solution, Fox threatened that any cinema that refused to show this movie would not be given the rights to screen the potential blockbuster The Other Side of Midnight from 1977, <laughs> which has ended up grossing less than 10% of what this movie did. That's awesome. Uh, uh, yeah, this is a fun little fact. The body count for this PG-rated film, when including the um, deaths in Alderaan and the Death Star, and the Death Star is... Two billion, two million, seven hundred ninety-five thousand, one hundred ninety-two deaths. <laughs> because they blew up the entire Ray and PG for parental guidance. <laughs> uh, That's great. Dennis Lawson, uh, who played Wedge until he's the uncle of Ewan McGregor, who plays Obi-Wan in the prequels. <laughs> Or R2. <laughs> Kenny Baker has said that often when the cast and crew broke for lunch, they would forget he was in the R2 outfit, leaving oh, him in yeah. there. there. There's actually a lot Just of... Just shows um, how convincing the costume was. <laughs> <laughs> so so there, there's a lot of uh, issues with, you know, sort of the comfortability in costumes uh, in this movie. Everywhere from, <laughs> you know, R2 not being able to get out. Um, C-3PO's uh, outfit... Uh, would constantly, particularly when they were in the Tunisian desert, um, it was very hard for Anthony Anthony Daniels to, to operate. Uh, Move it, in. It, and, yep, exactly. Yeah. So uh, basically his, his left leg piece kept shattering down and the, the plastic covering in his left foot kept stabbing him. Yeah, like, every there, step there was, he took, yeah. Yeah, so the, there, there was a lot, uh, uh, was it, uh, he couldn't see through the eyes, uh, which were covered uh, with gold to prevent corrosion. Um yeah, uh, uh, Kenny Baker. He, he, I have a quote from him saying, "I was incredibly grateful each time uh, uh, it would, you know, the R two would actually work." Um, and several times uh, they had to give uh, uh, everybody uh, Gatorade to keep them hydrated, and especially with the uh, the Ewok scene. Um, or, There's or, no or Ewoks, Ewoks in this movie. Yeah, there, the Jawas, the Jawas. I meant the Jawas. <laughs> Jawas. Yeah, <laughs> the Jawas in particular. Uh, also, uh, very hot in those costumes. Right. Yeah, um, and that's that's also like an historical thing of all Hollywood movies. You know, like it's gotten better as we've 
progressively made better materials and as work standards have improved when Hollywood that just like the costumes from like the 60s 70s or 80s even is like absolutely miserable to wear oh, versus yeah. like right now like it could still be definitely be a challenge but usually isn't like as dire as you hear about the original days of Star Wars or C-3PO just so yeah. right um, Carrie Fisher found Peter Cushing to be very charming polite and humorous on the set they got along so well, in fact, that Fisher found it a real challenge to act if she hated him. <laughs> Which was, yeah. hey, he just blew up my parents and the entire planet, but, you know, I can't, I can't hate him. just can't hate you. You're just, um, you're just so charming, Peter <laughs> Luke's line, I can't see a thing in this helmet, was not scripted. Mark Hamill said this to Harrison Ford when he thought that the cameras had stopped rolling, but they decided to leave it in. <laughs> uh, George Lucas came up with the name R2-D2 during post-production of American Graffiti. One of the sound crew wanted Lucas to retrieve Real 2 of the second dialogue track. In post-production parlance, this came out as "Could you get me or could you get R two D two for me?" Lucas liked the sound of that and noted it down for future use. Carrie Fisher's breasts were taped down with gaffer's tape, as her costume did not permit any lingerie to be worn underneath. She joked later, "As we all know, there is no underwear in space." Contradicting <laughs> this was when she wore the gold bikini in Episode Six. <laughs> oh. uh, eventually, according to Fisher in her book *Wishful Drinking*, George Lucas explained the reason that Leia didn't wear underwear was because in space you become weightless, but then your body expands, but your bra doesn't, so you get strangled by your own bra. This led Fisher to quip. I want it reported in my obituary that I drowned in moonlight strangled by my own bra. <laughs> when she died in 2016, several articles detailing her death showed the above sentence. So, <laughs> um, she, she just can't help. She always has the final right. word. Peter Cushing found the boots that he uh, was with his costume were extremely uncomfortable to wear because his, they were too small for his feet. Thus, he only wore them in a few shots in which Tarkin's feet can be seen. He's seen in most of the other shots. In other shots, Peter Cushing sat around with a pair of fuzzy slippers. Yeah. I just wish he would have been sitting there with like them, 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 them slippers that look like King Kong feet or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big foot. He had a claw furry feet, yeah. But what, what's really funny is um, Carrie Fisher had an extremely hard time doing the scenes with him wearing the... Because he would wear the fuzzy slippers in some scenes. And then so yeah. she had to act serious in scenes where he's wearing fuzzy slippers. Yeah. And he's... he's in, in the, in the uh, movie, he's incredibly intimidating. But... In real life, he's he's a very charming person. He's a very nice guy. So that added to her just like yeah. trying really hard to stay in. Can the you scene. imagine she like now there's a pair of two pink bunny slippers just looking at her, like, yeah. especially if you did like to tone if it's like they're coming oh, out yeah. or something while you're trying to stay in costume. There was actually uh, there's some fascinating online documentaries you can get on YouTube. Fear cushion. One of the one of his favorite pastimes actually was playing like the actual like classic army men games where you had the little green army men actually organized. Oh them, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Battlefields like like stuff like. People who play Warhammer now, Peter Cushing was coming out back of Army Men back in the day. So, like, in a lot of ways, he was a little nerd himself in a lot of cool ways. Um, fun fact about the boots, though, you said, like, you had to wear that. It goes on another film, but like, I remember in Rogue One when they digitally recreated him, that was actually one of the bigger pieces of struggle because they had to make it where he convincingly walked in those boots. Right. And that was a very big challenge for those actors. Uh, the, che- the Chewbacca suit retained a bad smell for the duration of filming after the trash compactor scene because it was all oh, wet. Oh, oh, um, God, I that was awful. Uh, <laughs> well, no, yeah. Um, according to Mark Hamill, studio executives were unhappy that Chewbacca had no clothes and attempted to have the costume redesigned with shorts. <laughs> <laughs> Chewie, well, I mean, you remember the old Batman where <laughs> Joker's in the shorts? <laughs> I guess why I picture Chewie like in some Hawaiian shorts or Hawaiian shirt. Oh, with all man. <laughs> this is the oh. second most attended movie of all time in North America, having sold an estimated 178 million tickets over its various theatrical runs. 
which would be a lot of money today. Um, the only movie to sold more tickets than this is Gone with the Wind in 1939 with 202 million, which we've also covered. That mm-hmm. is a lot. Yeah, a lot. Making numbers. Yeah. When yeah. the stormtroopers enter the room where C-3PO and R2-D2 are hiding, one of the actors accidentally oh, bumps yeah. his head on the doorway. It was always believed that this happened due to the actor's limited visibility. However, British actor Laurie Good, who claimed to be on the one inside the suit, later said that he was distracted by an upset stomach that day. Four takes of the shot were filmed that day, and the last one, which included the bump, made it into the movie. When the special editions came out in 1997... A sound effect has been added to the scene to accompany that bump. This won't make it a paying homage to the goof. Also, George Lucas also had Jango Fett bang his head on the door in Star Wars Episode Two as a homage to the incident. They've also well. paid homage to that in some of the video games as well. Some of that cuts into the start. Yeah, yeah. The gift that keeps on giving. A, a little tiny iconic scene. <laughs> now I found this interesting. This is the only Star Wars movie where Darth Vader's theme, the Imperial March, is not played in some form or another, as it has not been written yet at the time. Oh. Mm. I mean, that's iconic with our... Yeah. Um, what is that? Huh. A great deal of the movie was shot by vintage 1950s VistaVision cameras because they were of higher quality than any others available. After this movie was released, the prices of these cameras skyrocketed. Uh, Darth Vader only has 12 minutes of screen time in this movie. That makes sense. But... The minutes he's there, he's killing people like Chogo oh, yeah, or Chogo, yeah, or like Jaws and Steven, Spe- you know, like you know, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. You know, having the shark not appear until the very end or very limited case makes him all the more. That's why I said I said that, that. I think that worked. Here. Less is more. You know, what yeah, I mean? exactly. The oh, less yeah, is no. more. Of, yeah, that's Agreed. actually constant. A lot of the time has been in the case with Vader in a lot of different mediums. Is uh, just less is more with Vader. Like he's just this sort of omnious presence that is there but not there and then when he does show up you're like oh no his existence is terrifying <laughs> enough to know let alone his presence exactly you know, right the music by john williams is ranked number one on afi's top 100 film scores of course it is the jawas language is zulu electronically sped up greedo's language is kucha kuchia q-u-e-c-h-u-a kuchia an indigenous south american language sorry my south american listeners if i parents that uh when george lucas has screened the movie for 20th century foxes the reaction was presently positive alan jr and the other studios actors loved the movie and gareth wiggin told lucas this is the greatest film i have ever seen and cried during the screening lucas found this shocking and rewarding because he never gained any approval from a studio executive before <laughs> uh, the bantha being seen mounted by a tuscan raider after they spot luke skywalker speeder was actually an asian elephant owned by exotic animal trainer ralph uh, Helfer. Ralph. Just Ralph. Ralph. <laughs> Ralph. Uh, Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, dressed in a costume of fur and fake horns. Filming the scene proved difficult because the elephant was not accustomed to the extreme heat of Death Valley and kept removing the costume. What, yeah. <laughs> what is accustomed to the heat of Death Valley? Right. Death Valley. Yeah, right. Uh, Carrie Fisher was not accustomed to using guns prior to filming this movie. In preparation, she took shooting lessons from the same person that taught Robert De Niro to shoot for Taxi Driver in 1976. Oh, wow. Here it was. Wow. Uh, George Lucas waived the normal writer and director fee and asked for a mere $175,000 plus 40% of the merchandising rights. Oh, man. A paltry song. I probably won't make anything off it. <laughs> yeah, so, wow. That's just crazy. Uh, Princess Leia and Obi-Wan Kenobi never actually met in this movie. The closest they get to meeting is when she sees him from a distance during the lightsaber duel. 
Which, huh? You think that's again, odd? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I have to wonder, like, because the time of the recording, they've just announced the casting for the Obi Wan TV show. But they wonder if they might rectify that in some way, and actually having Obi Wan and Carrie Fisher, uh, not Obi Wan, <laughs> Princess Leia, <laughs> interact in some way. If they do Carrie Fisher, I'll be really amazed. <laughs> well, with Alan Guinness. Yeah, But it'd be really amazing to see if they do that later on, have Princess Leia and Obi Wan interact I, I, anyway. I don't think I feel they like will, it's, though. It's more of a relationship between Obi Wan and Senator or it, like, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, her uh, father. Princess Leia's father, is yeah, who more had the or less than her herself. You like, might, they might mention they might her, but I don't. Her as a I don't child, think. I don't but, think. Yeah, I don't yeah. think they will. I, we'll see. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. I, we'll I, I did, I did see the casting list for it. I'm quite excited. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. Yeah, but they didn't tell you who was playing who either. I so. Don't care. <laughs> <laughs> And here we go. We're going to talk about Mr. Sir Alec Guinness. The accounts of how Sir Alec Guinness regards this movie and his work on it vary greatly. He frequently recalled the experience of making this movie as a bad one and constantly claimed that it was an... Uh, his idea to have his character killed off in the first movie so as to limit his involvement and make sure he <laughs> wouldn't have to carry on saying these rubbish lines. <laughs> he later mentioned to shrivel up each time someone mentioned the movie. In one particular infam- infamous incident, a young boy asked for his autograph, proudly told him he had seen the movie over a hundred times, and Guinness gave it to him after promising to uh, made him promise to never watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> He also claimed to throw away all his. Uh, he also claimed to throw away all Star Wars related fan mail without even opening it, um, <laughs> because he hated the fact that he would not be most remembered as Obi Wan Kenobi, despite other roles which he held in much higher regard. Contrary to all this, George Lucas uh, has said he made the decision to kill off Kenobi since the character had no part play in the movie's finale, and he deserved a memorable exit. According to George Lucas, Guinness was less than happy that his character was dying earlier than expected, and even appeared to enjoy his time on set. Lucas, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher have always stated how patient and helpful Guinness was on the set and praised his professionalism and respectfulness to all cast and crew members. While Guinness made uh, no secret that he disliked the dialogue in Lucas's script, he claimed that he accepted the role for two reasons. One, he was an admirer of Lucas's previous movie, American Graffiti. And number two, the narrative compelled him to read the whole script through to the end in spite of not liking the dialogue and not being a fan of science fiction. Of the final movie, he remarked that he found it staggering as spectacle and technically brilliant, exciting, very noisy, and warm-hearted. The battle scenes at the end of the movie goes on for five minutes too long, and some of the dialogue excruciating as much as it is lost in his noise, but it remains a vivid experience. Hmm. <laughs> so this guy... as critical as it could be. Yeah, this guy <laughs> just didn't like anybody, period, I don't think. I, I, I also, like, I feel like you almost get two sides of your story, like... You know, the side of working without Guinness sounds like a tremendous, like a, a great experience of learning and being being very helpful and kind and gracious. But also having absolutely like a complete no holds no hole punches, you know, criticism of the work he actually has on the sci fi film. He doesn't yeah, care for the genre. Right. He doesn't care for the writing. He doesn't care for all those things. Uh, there's a, there's another uh, somehow very thing nice in here about him, and I'll tell you, there's another funny statement coming up soon. All right. <laughs> Um, according to an interview with George Lucas, originally Luke Skywalker was going to be a girl, and Han Solo was going to be an alien, and the Wookiees were called Jawas, and R2-D3 and C-3PO were called A2 and C-3. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a very different movie. Also yeah. a very George Lucas move, though. <laughs> George Lucas had not originally intended to have Anthony Daniels be the voice for C-3PO. He only changed his mind after a suggestion by Stan Freeberg, one of the actors considered as Daniels' replacement. Daniel's voice was altered in post-production. His character was supposed to be like a used car salesman. Ultimately, though, George Lucas was won over by the charisma of Daniel's reading as the part as a snooty British butler. And so Daniel's has been the voice of C-3PO ever since. 
Much of the Millennium Falcon is made up of junk parts from cars and airplanes, uh, much of which were obtained for dumping grounds and the like. Uh, Chewbacca was modeled after George Lucas's dog, Indiana. <laughs> and I think you see that again in uh, was uh, The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, where he's like, well, when, Indiana? He's like, we named the dog Indiana. <laughs> um, Peter Mayhew worked as an orderly in a Yorkshire hospital prior to being cast in this movie. Um, so when uh, George Lucas and I think Gary Kurtz over at the time to see if they're he's like, where are all the basketball players? You know what I mean? That nobody's in. And he said, uh, I think I found one. And as soon as Peter stood up, I said to him, you've got the job. <laughs> he said, we call it mind casting because it's really about people controlling their bodies. You're not looking really for the voice at that moment. You put that in later. Um, he said he wasn't quite tall enough, though. He was only seven foot three, and I wanted someone who was seven foot five. So we put high-heeled shoes on him. <laughs> <laughs> Another fun fact about his performance, though, he did actually create his own um, Wookiee, you know, roar, though. Oh, you know, that kind of old yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, it just didn't work out, and George Lucas was flagging, so they got to do a post-recording where they used animal noises instead. <laughs> well, we'll get to that, too. Somebody's got that in our notes, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So everything's been documented, like, five times in these notes, so we're going to uh, be a little redundant. <laughs> George Lucas' script evolved into a mammoth 200-page screenplay. Having a spending a full year writing it, he was reluctant to condense it, so instead he chose to concentrate on the first third with a view to expanding the remaining two-thirds into two additional movies. Yeah. So, um, well, this has already went on for like an hour and 15 minutes, so I'm going to go ahead and cut this down, or cut this one off for now. Uh, so we'll go ahead and stop it here, and then we'll come back and we'll do part two here in a minute. So I think that's a wrap on part one, and that's a wrap. And, and cut. cut. Hey, you guys got yeah. it! Yeah! Thank you.